0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years, maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. New Orleans shares many, many ties with the great continent of Africa. We're diving deep to explore those ties this week, beginning with the foremost authority of African foods assimilation worldwide, Dr. Jessica Harris. Jessica joins us to explain just what it means to be high on the hog, the name of both her best-selling book and her new Netflix series. Then, we take a trip to Africa through the eyes of Chef Serene Mbaye, whose DeCarnola is currently creating a sensation here in New Orleans. We'll catch up with Serene before sitting down with the Johnsons of Barrow's Catfish, a place that celebrates African-American food traditions daily here in New Orleans, just as they have for generations. We're traveling to Africa and back for a culinary adventure on this week's Louisiana Eat. You may know my friend Dr. Jessica Harris from Netflix, where her High on the Hog series is currently creating a major sensation. Based on her 2011 best-selling book of the same name, the documentary traces the origins of African-American cuisine and how it transformed America.
1: The truth is, a lot of American food has its roots in African-American food, traditions, And ingenuity.
2: Okra is African because it made the voyage with us. It did. We brought it to the new world.
0: Jessica originally sat down with us to explore the topic shortly after her book's publication. Here's Dr. Harris.
2: You know, one of the things that was amazing to me was this peculiar journey, if you will, that Africans have taken, uh, not voluntarily, from a continent that was, in fact, their, our arguably homeland, to this continent. Uh, And that sea change, I kept thinking of the, the Tempest, you know, undergoing a sea change into something rich and strange, which is then taken over again by an African-American poet named Robert Hayden, who does a book, uh, a poem, a story poem called The Middle Passage. And that journey, that sea change, that thing that changed people from being African to being African-American is a crucial and often unexamined part of that journey. And as such, it was really important to look. I mean, slavery was economic. It wasn't personal. It was an economic institution that one set of nations wrought on another set of people. And as such, and I'm not trying to um, to make that more gentle than it was. It was horrendous, horrific, and there are no words. And in reading and writing about the Middle Passage, that is what comes to the fore, the rations, the inability to move. I can't imagine being in such tight quarters chained to someone next to me. It's, you know, unspeakable. It's the kind of stuff that can make you go into a very small room and scream for a long time. But to think about after that, how those same individuals survived, and not all of them did. I think the figure is something like one in five, uh, and, and then managed to get to a point and a place where, you know, here I am sitting with you. The titles of
0: each chapter, each one is so evocative And I think the one that captured my imagination that I just can't get out of my head is the chapter entitled Sorrow's Kitchen.
2: Well, you know, that actually is my sort of tribute to Zora Neale Hurston. And Zora said, I've done been in Sorrow's Kitchen and I've licked the pots clean. And Sorrow's Kitchen really is the chapter on antebellum slavery, and it talks about just that. But some of the other type, well, the sea change we've already discussed, but equally um, the power of three. I think we never really talk about or think about Native Americans, European Americans, and African Americans, and how, how that ultimately is a cultural braid that we live daily, nowhere more so than in New Orleans.
0: I was fascinated with your tales of Philadelphia. I had no idea that the term caterer was a modern term, and I
2: loved how you tied it all back to Robert Bogle. Okay, well, I don't know that caterer is such a modern term in that sense, but what Bogle meant as he became a caterer was incredible. And Bogle was someone who may have been enslaved, who gets to Philadelphia, which was a Mecca, certainly in the late 18th, early 19th century, and there discovers that he has certain abilities. He, If he had been enslaved, he was certainly a house slave of some sort. And he gets to Philadelphia, and Philadelphia at that point in time no longer had slavery. But as it was moving from enslavement, one of the things that happened was the wealthy families, if they were not wealthy enough to have a household of servants, then could rent a butler. So Bogle took this job, and then in the course of his developing this job, became a caterer. And he became a caterer to the wealthy of Philadelphia, up to the point where, um, if you know the sort of the Philadelphia names, the Biddles are the very, you know, sumum of society. And so Biddle wrote an ode to Bogle. And Biddle's ode to Bogle basically talks about how A child is not considered properly christened. A person is not considered well dead and buried. A wedding is not considered to have taken place and been sanctified unless Bogle is there to take care of it.
0: I was shocked to learn that the Haitians had such a... Philadelphia influence as well. Oh,
2: absolutely. They, were, they came to Philadelphia in great numbers. One of the things we tend to forget about Philadelphia is it was an extraordinary port. It was in constant contact with the Caribbean from the colonial period onward. They had um, the ability to have plantains in the market mangoes in the market. They were not everyday common currency, and certainly they were only for the wealthy, but this ebb and flow of foodstuffs with the Caribbean. Women of West Indian origin in Philadelphia served Philadelphia gumbo, which is called pepper pot, but they also called it Philadelphia gumbo with fufu dumplings, sometimes written as frou-frou dumplings, but fufu being a West African mash. All of that along with the fact that then the Haitians are coming into town. And as they come into that mix that already has a certain Caribbean creole underlay, they get into the catering business. And so they then take these ideas formulated by Bogle and manage to move them forward because they have families of caterers. And then they began to virtually share opportunities, share equipment, so that each family didn't have to have tables. They had a warehouse and whichever family needed them could get tables, could get chairs, could get all of the equipment that was a part of that catering process. And so as such, what they managed to do was then take generations and certainly families of newly arrived Haitians, but also of African-American Philadelphians, and bring them out of poverty using their catering skills.
0: Jessica, let's go to New York and talk about oysters, and in particular, Thomas Downing.
2: Certainly, oysters were a big thing in New York City in the 19th century. A man named Thomas Downing, who began his life on the eastern shore of Maryland or Virginia, I don't know that people are sure yet, made his way to New York. Well, now, eastern Maryland, eastern Virginia has its own oyster culture. And certainly anybody who lived in that rural environment knew something about oysters, knew how to get them, probably knew how to seed them. And so when Downing gets to New York, he creates his own, or he goes out, he actually rows himself out And he finds his own oyster beds. And he begins, and this is sort of a classic pattern in terms of African-American culinary entrepreneurship, he begins slowly by selling oysters on the street. And his knowledge of oysters is such that people begin to recognize him as being important in this. He ultimately goes from the street to building his own restaurant. He ends up with an oyster refectory. And he um, has his own oysters that are served a particular way. He roasts them. And so he's got roasted oysters with a a dollop of butter on the top. Sounds a little familiar. And so he ends up with a restaurant that is so famous that Charles Dickens eats there. The Prince of Wales eats there. He serves all of the well-to-do of New York City based on his knowledge of oyster culture.
0: Although there is a handful of symbolic recipes at the end of this book, this is not a cookbook. No, it's I, not. I don't want anyone to misunderstand that this is a book for reading.
2: It's basically, I like to call it, a narrative history. It's not documented. It's not heavy doing plowing uphill through footnotes. There are none. I wanted to write a book, and I talk about this briefly in the introduction. I wanted to write a book that my grandmothers could have read. And certainly they could have perhaps, well, one could have read the book with the footnotes. The other could not have. And, you know, it's certainly to honor them probably that I do much of what I do and my parents as well. But equally, I think it's it's not something that needs to be made unclear. It's something that needs to be just plain discussed.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for being a part-time New Orleanian. And thank you for taking the time to come and talk
2: with us today. Well, thank you for your friendship, my dear.
0: That was Dr. Jessica Harris speaking with Louisiana Eats in 2011, following the publication of her best-selling book, High on the Hog. The docu-series of the same name is currently streaming on Netflix. Why has Jessica Harris spent her life following the okra trail? Stay tuned and we'll explore that topic when we come right back. B. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home and from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. This week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Why has Jessica Harris spent her life following the okra trail? Dr. Harris believes the story of enslaved Africans may be demystified by following the travels of those humble green pods. Okra is native to West Africa where it provided a healthy favorite food source since virtually the dawn of time. As enslaved Africans were shipped to faraway places from the Caribbean to Brazil and the slave markets of New Orleans, okra followed along and Dr. Harris has been hot on its trail. From tasting Brazil to beyond gumbo and the Africa cookbook, Okra has played a starring role in virtually all of her books. I've learned so much from my friend Jessica, who's also a sometimes New Orleanian, having acquired a home here decades ago. Perhaps my favorite Okra memory with Jessica is the year the Condomble voodoo priestesses visited Jazz Fest from Brazil. You see, in Brazil, rather than shunning Okra's natural sliminess, They prized that texture. The visiting priestesses were friends of Jessica's from her time there. On the food heritage stage that day, she translated for them from their native Portuguese as I assisted their cooking efforts. That day, I witnessed a magical dish being prepared just as they do regularly in Brazil as an offering to their orisha, the god of their voodoo house. The dish was made by cutting exactly 60 pods of okra first in a cross cut from tip to stem and then finished into a tiny dice cutting entirely by hand. The more you cut fresh okra, the slimier it becomes. So words can't describe that finished product complete with bright orange red dendê oil. Let's just say it was not for the faint of heart. To learn more, pick up a copy of Dr. Jessica Harris' 1992 publication, Tasting Brazil. And whatever you do, don't miss her Netflix series, High on the Hog. This is Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. in 2017, Louisiana Eats brought you the story of a 24-year-old Senegalese-American chef whose personal journey took him from his birthplace in New York to an abusive boarding school in Senegal, and finally to New Orleans. Here, he landed a job at the legendary Commander's Palace, quickly working his way up to become senior line cook. His culinary career was shaped by hard work and a drive to understand his culinary roots.
3: can was never part of my vocabulary. As tough as it gets, I knew that the result of it would be great. So just keep fighting, and then someday I'll fly.
0: His name is Chef Serene Mabe, and today the ambitious chef continues to call New Orleans home. Through his fine dining pop-up, Dakar Nola, Serene honors both his Senegalese roots and Creole flavors, showcasing the similarities of West African traditions and our own. Chef Serene joined us to give us an update on what he's been up to since we last spoke.
4: After the last time we spoke, I was working at Kamata's Palace as a senior line cook. I made it as a sous chef and ended up working at Cafe Adelaide as a PM sous chef, I ran in there for a year until the contract was up. After that it was over, I helped open a new restaurant that the, the Commander's Palace family had, which is a Picnic on magazine. So I helped open that at the beginning. At a
0: Commander's Palace celebration, Serene met Chef Dominique Crenn, a three Michelin star chef based out of San Francisco.
4: I got to know who she is by watching the, um, the Netflix series on Chef Table. And I've been, you know, been following her career throughout that experience. We exchanged information. And then that summer, they told me to come in for a stodge. So I got my knife kit and went on to San Francisco, did a three-day stodge. And it was absolutely amazing. And the last day, she asked me, do I want to work at a Atelier Krenn? So I, t- I told her it would be a dream. You must have been a little starstruck, for sure, without a doubt. Because here I am working at Commander's Palace uh, Cafe, Adelaide, where the restaurant is more of a cooking, and uh, they have all these fancy techniques that I didn't, I didn't know how to use at the time. You know, sous vide, uh, you know, different style of oven, flat tops um, oven, where it's not like you know, no gas. So it was it was different style of, technique, of cooking. You know, everything is cooked to a T. Even salt is measured.
0: After a year in San Francisco, a new opportunity popped up for him, this time with world-renowned Senegalese chef Pierre Chamb.
3: To me, he is the legendary chef that's living because he's bringing West African cuisine in a way that no one has not even think about. And he's educating folks about West African cuisine.
4: He currently has a restaurant in New York City called Teranga, which basically means like hospitality in Wolof. So this, before his restaurant opened up, he had this project that was, he was doing a pop-up in Spain at a, a beautiful hotel in Barcelona. And he asked me if I could come in Barcelona for you know three months and uh, do a summer gig with him over there doing modern Senegalese food.
0: Had you been in Barcelona before?
4: No, I'd never been to Spain prior to that. So that was my first time being in Spain. And it was an amazing experience. Seeing seafood cooked in many different ways. Um, understand how to cook rice better.
3: In Senegal, we have the hard rice that similar to with, what with, uh, with Spain is doing. But the thing is, we're cooking in a much bigger pot. So you don't have that crunchy bite every single bite. But in a beautiful, great paella in Spain, every bite that you take, you get to see that balance between seafood, uh, the acidic, the crunchiness. So it was just amazing bite all the way through.
0: Serene's culinary education continued back in New York, where he worked for French chef and restaurateur, Chef Joel Robuchon. Then, just as the pandemic hit, Serene made the decision to return to New Orleans.
3: All the time, people always ask me, what city that you've seen yourself live in? There's only two cities, is it in New Orleans or Dakar? And I had the idea, you know, combine the two together, so Dakar and Noma. So that's how the name came about. Dakar is the city where I'm from, Senegal, and Nola, New Orleans. So bringing those two together, uh, if you connect back history, Senegalese has big influence on Korean cuisine. And no one is not telling the story in New Orleans. So for me, I make it my responsibility as a young cook to let folks in New Orleans know that there's a huge connection. And these are some of the dishes. We Look at gumbo, you know, and gumbo, you translate the word to French. It's called okra. In Senegal, we have okra gumbo soup, and then we also have another thing called beignets in Senegal. And New Orleans, called exactly the same.
0: So tell me about your DeCarnola menu. Uh,
3: it depends. Usually, I'm doing a lot. Of, I'm doing mostly seafood, and I'm very big on healthy food. What I mean by that is like you know uh, gluten free, dairy free, um, vegan, vegetarian. Because in New Orleans, there's not a lot of places that offers those options for folks that can't eat a lot of dairy or don't want to eat dairy or want some more vegetables because oftentimes people think of Africa that doesn't have people think of West African cuisine don't have much to offer to the world so I wake up every day with that burden that you know we do have good food we do have good cuisine we do cook farm to table that's all we do and you know a way to introduce West African cuisine to the world is beautiful
0: That was Chef Serene Mabay of Dakar Nola.
5: Deirdre Johnson of Barrow's
6: Catfish. And I'm Kenneth Johnson of Barrow's Catfish.
0: Deirdre Johnson is the third generation of the family that opened Barrow's Shady Inn, one of New Orleans' longest-running Black-owned restaurants famous for their catfish. She and her husband, Kenneth, are keeping the family business alive through its latest iteration, Barrow's Catfish located just blocks away from the restaurant her grandparents founded back in 1943. Like many New Orleans stories, it's not just about a business. It's a love story. It's a history of a family's resilience in the face of tragedy. And it's a story about new beginnings. Deirdre began by telling us what motivated her grandparents to open Barrow's Shady Inn 80 years ago.
5: Well, my grandmother and my grandfather, of course, you know that that was a very segregated time. And my grandfather had the idea to start a bar for people of color. And that was his intent. It was not to uh, have a restaurant or a catfish restaurant, let alone. But he started the bar. And he ended up selling catfish sandwiches out of the back door for fifty cents. It was a select catfish. My grandfather drove every week a place called thezelmonds and went and got the fresh wild catfish. I'm talking large catfish is almost as tall as me when I was a little girl, and they would fillet it all day on Mondays. We had to close down on Mondays because that was our processing day. And all we sold was catfish and potato salad, either bones in or bones out. And it ended up taking off. And uh, people grew to love uh, this icon in the community. Then my father uh, continued on the legacy. He took over maybe in the 70s and barrels took off uh, really to the next level kind of worldwide around that time. And uh, he ran it along with a family member and a couple other family members until his passing. Well, prior to him uh, passing, he was grooming my brother. Let me say that. Uh, My brother would probably have jumped ahead of me and he would have been the third generation. Uh, He passed and my husband and I started dating in the 80s. And when my brother passed, we came in and uh, we groomed. He was groomed by my father and learned everything about the business. What do you think makes Barrow's Catfish so special and so different? Well, I'll let my husband continue on with that because uh, he's hands-on with the fish and was groomed by my dad, but it's been the same since my, my grandparents started. We, he learned yeah. everything. I
6: mean, I think the key for us is the fact that uh, we keep the product very close to us. And when I say close, I mean uh, it's very delicate. We take our time. Of course, the special season blend that's been passed down uh, for generations, but just the, the processing. I mean, the processing is, is about two days of how we season, marinate it. And then even from the, 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 the frying technique, uh, making sure that there's the right balance of cornmeal to fish because if it's too much moisture, then the cornmeal is too cakey. And even from the standpoint of the fish itself, you have to have the right uh, balance of water when you're actually seasoning it because if it's too wet or too dry, that distort the color presentation, and also the temperature. The temperature has to be right. A lot of the, the new guys, when I bring them in and train them, they say, well, I see you have a temperature gauge on your fryers, but you know, how do you know before? How do you guys know what the temperature was right? I said, well, I was taught we had to stick our finger in the grease. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll look at me like, really? I said, no, that's just a joke, don't, don't try that, please.
5: My dad used to tell that joke. <laughs>
0: That, to me, is such a beautiful part of your story. Kenneth, tell me the story of how you came into this family.
6: Well, we, you know, we we uh, hit it all from the beginning. And um, as she stated, after her brother passed, I guess we had dated maybe two or three years. And I just, you know, our, uh, I was in college at the time. And her dad, uh, we were having a conversation. He asked me, he said, look, you, you know what's happened? You know, he knew I was in college. He said, it could be a great fit. When you're in college, you're broke. You don't have any money. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, we need help around here. And I thought it was going to just sort of be a a job in between semesters. And I got in and uh, did well at it. And like anything, whenever I, you know, whatever I do, I try to do my best. And it just one thing led to another. And, And as I said, you know, the rest is history.
5: And he's being very modest because um, when my brother passed, it, of course, it was very devastating. He was only 24 and it was my, my father's only son. And so my husband, uh, boyfriend at the time, he just came to my father and he said, um, if it's anything that you need me for, I'm here. I know I can't replace your son, but, you know, I'm here for you uh, in any way. And then my father later on came to him and said, you know, I need you. So that really touched my my dad because no one was able to come in and and do what he did at that time. And how did
0: the marriage proposal happen? So, did you did you ask the boss for permission or did the boss have an idea what was going on?
6: He knew. I mean, we we spent a lot of time together. Um, you know, we studied together, we was together all the time when I, cause I also played football in college. So whenever I wasn't practicing and playing, we were together, but I, I did ask, you know, I told him one day that I would love to marry your daughter and then. He he said, "Well, I thought you guys was already married, but I thought you maybe had it No, because we were always, always together, together. <laughs> you know. So I just tell you, you know, we spent a lot of time we were, you know, together uh, while we were dating. So we just yeah. knew. You know, yeah, going on much, uh, thirty years this 30 year. Years.
0: By the 1990s, local newscasters, national food reporters, and big names like Muhammad Ali and Oprah Winfrey made their way to this hidden Holly Grove gem to sample their famous catfish. While Chef Billy Jr. appreciated the business, he had no interest in name dropping.
5: This was the way my dad was. He never wanted to put celebrity pictures on the wall because this was his motto: that everyone is important. Yeah,
6: he didn't want any. He wanted to any the less. Joes
5: in the neighborhood to feel just as important as any celebrity or anyone that came to buy his product that made him feel good. It didn't matter what your status was, how important you were, how much money you had. If you took the time to pass up all the restaurants and come to buy mine in this little corner tucked away, then that, that you're a celebrity to me. And we tell our kids that all the time where we close at nine o'clock or we 10 before COVID. Uh, but if it's 9.05 and a customer pulls up, turn that grease back on. We're ready to close, we're closed, no. They drove all the way past all these other restaurants, come all the way from Slidell or wherever it was, turn that grease back on. You can wait.
0: I have such a visual memory. I mean, long before Earhart Expressway was built.
5: Came through, yeah.
0: You know, of course, everybody and their brother just had to notice Barrow's Catfish once it was there. But it was such a... A sturdy brick building
5: and the neon sign. Yeah, it was it was a um it was an eye catcher. You had to see it, even if you didn't know it, what, what it was, especially at nighttime. It was lit up uh with the neon sign and the catfish barrels shady in at the time. Uh and so it was a white building uh with a courtyard. It was a very beautiful property and with the neon and when it lit up. It was very um very noticeable when you drove by.
6: yeah, he was actually, um, and my yeah. wife has that same gift. I would always uh, you know mention to her father actually, how do you see things in such an abstract way like he did? I mean, just the way he would lay the courtyard out or he would say, well, hey, son, i gonna watch. I'm gonna put this stone here. I'm gonna plant this there. Or we're gonna do this and do that. And build some of the tables like, out there. I don't see that. <laughs> you know, I'm a numbers guy. I don't I don't see that kind of stuff. But I mean, he could just sit back and tell me something. And then a day or two later, uh, I see it after, you know, he's executed it. And, and that's kind of the, the the talent that and the vision he had for just laying the property out. You know, just from the color scheme, um, and like I said, the, the neon was just beautiful. He took a lot of pride, um, not just in the fish, but everything that represented barrels, everything that he placed his signature on it. It was uh, first class, and and we strive very hard to continue that legacy. You know, not just with the fish, but everything that we do.
0: Tragically, in 1999, Billy Jr. was walking a block away from his restaurant when he was hit by a car and killed. He was just 59 years old. Suddenly, the next generation was pushed to lead the restaurant into the 21st century. They brought their own ideas to the family business and added a second location on the West Bank.
6: We were... um... You know, finding our way is one thing to work with our father and to learn. But once you're now responsible for the operation and everyone's relying on you and what it was for us at the time, uh, a year before Katrina, we had expanded to the West Bank uh, with the second location. A lot of what people see today was actually what we were testing uh, at that time. What we found that people were coming from the East Bank all the way to the West Bank because they heard of what we were doing so it was going very well so we were very excited by that. Uh, Our kids were you know they were young, good place, Uh, they saw the expansion, they were very excited you know getting into some merchandising, spices, we were working on that as well.
0: By the summer of 2005, business was booming and things were looking rosy for Deirdre, Kenneth and their children. Then, as with so many of us, their fortunes reversed on August the 29th, 2005, when the levees failed following the passage of Hurricane Katrina.
6: That weekend, um, we thought it was just another weekend like we always we did. We had just we,
5: purchased a brand new yeah. air conditioner.
6: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we had... Ex- we, just <laughs> we're, life
5: as usual, life running as a usual business, you know, purchase let's, our fish.
6: Yeah, let's, let's go ahead and pack the bag, get away for the weekend, and but we weren't really going to leave. We were going to leave. I was, you know, like you said, we had all this inventory and, and I, my uh, employees, they weren't going to leave. I said, okay, guys, we just stay open, you know, and the Saturday morning, I was looking at the news and I saw how big that and massive that storm was. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about, okay, no electricity, (laughs) no AC, humidity, you know, my wife, my kids, you know, I could, you know, my kids, I had to always keep them busy. I, I didn't even want to imagine being in a house with them. And I said, okay, guys, let's just go away for the weekend. And we decided to go east. And I was sitting in the hotel and I was watching Anderson Cooper. And he said, a breach in the levee. And I'm like, okay, I know what breach means, <sighs> but let me pull out my uh, dictionary.com <laughs> and see all the meanings <laughs> of the word breach. And when he showed Xavier University in in that area right there on uh, Washington and Carrollton, and I saw the water level, you know, and I told my wife, I said, we're not going back. It'll be a while. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to have to put a resume together or something. Yeah, they
5: they had a, a diagram. We never forget, we were lying in the hotel, and there was a diagram of what could happen the next day, and they showed the bowl, the crescent. And my father, I remember immediately at that moment, all my life, I would hear him say, baby, we're in a bowl, we're in a bowl. And I could not understand what that meant. And when I saw that that diagram, that illustration on the news, I had an aha moment, like, oh my God, that's what my daddy was saying. And like my husband said, we were not planning to leave uh, because time and time again, you live in New Orleans, let's wing it, you know, let's just stay here, let's just trust God and let's lay low and get some food and have a hurricane party, you know? But who would have known that? It would have been that devastating.
1: (laughs)
0: After three decades in business, Katrina shuttered the doors of Barrow's Shady Inn. But it wasn't the end of the family business. When we come back from a short break, our conversation with Deirdre and Kenneth Johnson continues as we learn how they're reintroducing the legacy of the Hollygrove Mainstay with its newest iteration, Barrow's Catfish. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana fish fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Let's all Louisiana and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 miles north of New Orleans' French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. This fall includes many outdoor festivals, the weekend Beats and Eats, and upcoming holiday events. The delicious Tammany-taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions and more at louisiananorthshore.com. If you're just joining us, we've been speaking with Deirdre Johnson and Kenneth Johnson of Barrow's Catfish. They're the third generation of family that opened Barrow's Shady Inn, one of New Orleans' longest-running black-owned restaurants. When we left off, the levee failures following Hurricane Katrina had shuttered the expanding family business. With their two kids just entering their preteen years, Deirdre and Kenneth made the tough decision to decamp to Georgia and get out of the restaurant game for a while.
6: At that point, the, the kids, the wealth, welfare and well-being of our kids became top priority. Uh, we knew even during the time, crime was kind of you know, a concern in New Orleans. And the schools. So I said, let's just stay here you know, where we were in Atlanta and just raise our kids, give them the best opportunity. And then so once we got them through high school or whatever, we can come back and decide what we're gonna do.
5: And we knew eventually that we would come back. Um, It was just a matter of uh, the right timing. Um, All the family that was connected to the business was gone Mm -hmm. and it would just be my husband and I. So we took that time off for those four years that we were in Atlanta and then came home and uh, waited for an opportunity to open the business again.
0: The placement of the new restaurant was really brilliant. You're like, you're just right there on Earhart Expressway.
1: Yeah.
6: That was key for us because we had a, a checklist of what we were looking for uh, in the right location. Of course, we wanted to come back into Earhart uh, area, Carrollton area, um, but visibility, which we knew we had before, but ac- accessibility was very, very key for us. Yeah. So we had like a five point uh Checklist, checklist of the perfect place. You know, people, once we put the word out, we wanted to reopen, you know, people was calling us all over the city. Well, we found this spot. We were like, uh, I don't think that's it. And I was just scrolling online one night and I saw the building. She was asleep. I woke her up. I said, look, I think I found I think I think found a place. And she's like, where? I said, it's in Earhart, off of Earhart in Carrollton. And when we walked in, she looked at the place. She said, this is it. And we met with our kids, which we knew it was time because they were working in education and we were having dinner one day and we was very surprised of their enthusiasm. And and we say, hey, look, you know, your mom and I think about reopening the restaurant, you know, would you guys be interested? And they were like, yes. So once we got buy-in from them, we knew uh, it was the right time and they've been committed ever since.
0: So let's talk about opening the business again. When was that? When did you get
5: that business reopened exactly? That was July 6, 2018, when we found uh, the time and the place. We were a little afraid. I'm I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it was okay, uh, just a, a walk in the park. But again, after all that time had gone by, we knew that a lot of our Customer base probably had died off. Uh, Communities change. You have a new generation uh, getting back in the game, you know, 13 years later, starting it over like it was a new business. Uh, We had the brand, but it was like opening up a new business again. So it was a little scary, Um, but my husband and I sit and we shake our head because of the support and the love the first week the line was wrapped around the corner and it brought, I I called my husband outside and I said, please come and see. He's like, what, I can't stop working, what? I was like, you've got to come and see this. And we came outside and I'm not talking about a line that was moving. People stood in line for two, three hours until we ran out of catfish And we had to shut down from 3 o'clock and tell them we were going to reopen at 6 or 7. And they stood in the heat, didn't want to lose their place, didn't go home and come back. They stood and waited for us to open again because they wanted to be a part of history.
0: So what does the future hold? What's in the hopper for what comes next?
6: Well, we um, definitely with the expansion right now is about putting things in place for the fourth generation. Uh, you know, we don't have grandkids yet, uh, but I'm constantly uh, talking, speaking it in the restaurant around the staff My because one, I want them coming. to understand that all the decisions we make are for the fourth, <laughs> for the and, fifth, fourth yeah. and fifth generation. We, we wanted to build it enough where everyone could be a part because it's a family business. Our grandparents and Father, you know, gave us a very strong brand. Uh, we had the privilege of working closely with them, understanding the history and the things it took, you know, for the brand to be as strong as it, it is. And we're passing mm-hmm. that on uh, to our kids. But now, that's the plan to, to yeah. expand with a few yeah. a few more and we, locations. We,
5: yeah, we'd like to do some uh, even, you know, step outside the state. You know, we'd like to do some some something outside of the city as well. That's always been a hope of us. Well, it has been an honor
0: and a pleasure to spend this time with you all. Thank you so Likewise. much. Likewise. 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 <laughs> Likewise. Thank, Thank you, you for having, for having us. us. Really, us.
5: really appreciate it.
0: That was Deirdre Barrows-Johnson and Kenneth Johnson, third-generation owners of Barrows Catfish, located at 8300 Earhart Boulevard, in New Orleans. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. If you've been dying to experience a real drag brunch, our upcoming Halloween Drag Brunch Extravaganza, sponsored by Bacardi Brands at Tujac's Restaurant, is sure to be a haunting good time. The brunch is happening on Sunday, October 31st, Halloween Day itself, when the quarter will be rocking and the witches will be cackling. For reservations and to learn more, you may reach the restaurant at 504 Five two five eight six seven six. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have ten years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mullidue. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.